0: There is no question that Revelation 13 happens to be one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible. Not only do we see the rise of both the Antichrist, this final global leader, and his sidekick, this false prophet, a man who institutes a worldwide religion centered on the deification of this man, but John describes for us a 42-month period This 42 months, it's also defined as uh, 1,260 days. You'll find it references time, times, and half a time. But these 42 months in which Satan uses these two men, the Antichrist and false prophet, to wreak havoc on the earth. During these closing three and a half years that will culminate with the return of Christ Jesus, humanity will be forced into making a definitive decision. You will pledge your allegiance to this satanic cult by taking upon your right hand or forehead the mark of the beast, or you can refuse and be swiftly executed. Now, obviously, for the followers of Christ, this particular season of human history will be brutal. In Revelation 13, verses 7 and 8, we read how Satan granted to the Antichrist the power to make war or or to engage in an aggressive conflict with the saints. And not just engage in a conflict or wage war, but to overcome them. We're also told, tragically, that all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast, the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life. Frankly, I think the church has grown a bit naive when it comes to the capacity within people to not only commit crimes against their fellow man, but to also provide an intellectual justification for those crimes. You know, we look at the horrors that are committed across the world by Islamist fanatics. Let's say, Boko Haram in northern Africa. And in a lot of sense, we'll rationalize their brutal actions as being you know, just the result of, of barbarism, or third world living, or, or just desperation. In fact, geopolitical strategies even suggest that modernization, education will fix that issue in these parts of the world. And yet, the problem with such a perspective is that the West has failed to realize that progressive, intellectual, upper-class folks are equally capable of similar brutality. Let me give you one example of this. You look back at Germany of old and you wonder how an entire modern, highly educated Western society could accept the premise that the Jew needed to be exterminated and then practically proceed to execute six million people. I mean, how do you do that? A Western society, and yet they did. In the same vein, revolutionaries like Fidel Castro or Jay Guevara They rose from the upper middle class and hailed from academia. These are smart, educated, Western minded people. Like, if you don't think that Americans share the same capacities for depravity, then you're ignoring history, human psychology, and basic theology. Like, just the other day, it blew my mind. It was astonishing that President Biden excused the current human rights atrocities being committed by the Chinese government against the Uyghurs as being, quote, a difference in our cultural norms. Like, he added that forcing 3 million Muslims into concentration camps was being done by President Xi to, quote, unify the country. Like, can you imagine if in the 40s, FDR spoke about Hitler's Holocaust Using the same terminology? Oh, it's just different cultural norms. He's trying to unify his his society. It, It would be like knowing that one of your allies was systematically murdering tens of millions of their own citizens and not having the backbone to stand up against such evil. Which we did. Now understand, a country, our country, that justified slavery for 89 years Jim Crow and segregation, the soft bigotry of low expectations, and today idly sits back and reelects leader after leader who support the systematic racism of Planned Parenthood that has eradicated several generations of blacks from ever entering our society by specifically placing abortion clinics in low income communities. If you don't think that society isn't capable of committing grave evil, I don't know what to say to you. Now granted, what we see happening in Revelation 13, as dark as it is, and it is dark, it is kind of unique to some extent to the the tribulational period. And yet, what you should know is that the world will accept at some point a premise that anyone who fails to bow down and take the mark and worship this Antichrist deserves to be beheaded. It's not outlandish. It's what the Bible presents. Never forget, every human is born with a sin nature, which gives them a natural tendency to do what is wrong as opposed to what is right. And since the human consciousness is incredibly pliable, history testifies that all kinds of evil can be morally justified especially when the society in which these crimes are being committed has already rejected Jesus. Now, as we move into Revelation 14, the difficult scene that's presented in chapter 13, it's important. It's important to keep in mind because it establishes kind of the necessity for the things that John is now going to record in this next chapter. Chronologically, following the blast of the seventh trumpet, and the temple and heaven being opened at the end of Revelation 11, John has pushed pause on the heavenly action, and he's done so in order to fill us in on some of the other events happening on the earth during the Great Tribulation. To accomplish this, in Revelation 12 and 13, he's introduced us to seven significant characters. And yet, before John jumps back into the flow of what's happening in heaven, starting in Revelation 15, Because chapter 13 was so dark and so depressing, this wise, old, aged apostle, John, he senses in the midst of his revelation the need to give his audience a quick glimpse. A quick glimpse into the future so that they can see how the story ends. Yes, chapter 13, it's dark, it's depressing, it's ominous. But in chapter 14, the apostle, he lets us know that while it might seem, while it might appear that the Antichrist and the false prophet are winning, that Satan is having his way on the earth, no, 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 don't forget, a reckoning was coming. They won't win in the end. And that's really what chapter 14 is about. So let's dive in, beginning with verse 1. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb, standing on Mount Zion, And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, with regards to the timing of what John is seeing here, it's important to kind of nail down both the location of this future scene as well as identify the people he sees in the vision. Now, central to this moment, John sees, look at it, the lamb, which we've already been introduced to. The lamb is no doubt Jesus. And with the Lamb, with Jesus, John sees these 144,000. Now this group was first introduced to us back in Revelation chapter 7. For a quick recap, these 144,000 had been sealed, having the name of God, the name of Jesus' Father, written on their foreheads. As a result of this sealing, this unique designation, during the Great Tribulation, these 12,000 men chosen from the 12 tribes of Israel were granted supernatural protection. They were immune to attack or to assassination, to murder. They would survive the tribulational period. And there was this unique purpose to this. You see, Jesus wanted to ensure that he had a representation, a witness. The salt of the earth, the light of heaven shining out in the darkness during these seven years. And so these 144,000 have been set aside, sealed, and they were to act as kind of evangelists in this this season. Now because we know, again, that these men, because they've been sealed, will survive, against great odds, but they will survive the great tribulation, seeing them now standing with Jesus upon Mount Zion. it's, It's really fascinating. Again, the way that chapter 14, verse 1 opens. Mount Zion. And I think the 162 times that Mount Zion is, is referenced in the Bible, it's virtually always a physical location on earth. In fact, Mount Zion is almost all, always a reference to a collection of hills, you might call mountains, upon which David built the ancient city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat on Mount Zion. The location of this scene, as a result, Jesus with the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. It tells us that this cannot be heaven. There is no Zion in heaven. It must be earth. So this, again, is a future scene. Jesus, the 144,000 on Mount Zion. Specifically, they're standing in the holy city of Jerusalem. As such, it seems, John here is giving us a quick peek into the very beginnings of what we will call a post-tribulational time period. We'll get to later in the book. Now, building on this idea, it's also significant that John sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Because that's actually very unique to, what, to John's record here. It's distinct from other passages of Scripture. He's standing on Mount Zion and not really where you would think he would be standing, which would be the Mount of Olives. Now, you might be saying, well, why the Mount of Olives, Zach? Well, when Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, we read how, as the disciples are watching Jesus ascend, when he leaves their view, there's two angels that appear. And this is what they said. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go. In fact, Jesus' physical return to the earth, occurring on the Mount of Olives, is confirmed by the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14. Let me read you a section. The prophet seeing this future day, he says, Then the Lord will go, go forth and he'll fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet, again speaking of Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives. Which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives, so the moment the toe hits hits the, the peak, the Mount of Olives will split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half of it to the south, and in that day there shall be living waters that flow from Jerusalem, half towards the eastern sea, and half of them towards the western sea. And both summer and winter it shall occur And then the Lord shall be king over all of the earth. Again, seeing this future moment when Jesus returns, stepping onto the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives splitting from the Mount of Olives, this reservoir of living water, new valleys, new topography. In many ways, Jerusalem will become kind of a a pseudo port. It will be a river city, unique. Now, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but in Revelation 19, John will record for us the second coming of Jesus. Let me read you a section, verse 11 of chapter 19. John says that I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowds. And he had the name that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name it's called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven... Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he strikes the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Aside from the reference of a wicked cool tattoo that Jesus has on his thigh, Biblical justification for getting tatted, just saying. You know, there's no mention by John of a landing spot, right? So John doesn't mention a landing spot, so we've got to go to the other passages. Mount of Olives is where he touches down, but he, John is seeing him not on the Mount of Olives. He's seeing him on Mount Zion. It appears, and I'm going to connect a few dots for you, that when Jesus returns to the earth, there will be a particular order to what happens. Now, obviously, the most pressing matter will be destroying the armies of the Antichrist and in the process, judging the nations. We'll be given more insight into what that actually looks like at the end of this chapter. Once that's resolved, right, Jesus then will land on the Mount of Olives. And then he'll cross the Kidron and enter Mount Zion through the eastern gate. And he'll begin the process at this point of establishing his kingdom on the earth. This seems to be what John is looking at. The moment. Jesus and the 144,000, they're in Jerusalem. Which means a lot of things have already happened. A lot of things have been completed. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, we're actually given kind of a timeline for a few additional events that take place during this time period. Again, as you study prophecy, you always end up kind of coming back to the 1,260 days from the abomination of desolation as being the second coming of Jesus Christ. Daniel repeats this over and over and over again in his writings, but Daniel also gives us a few other dates, a few other time periods. Again, just to fly by, Jesus' return, he'll return to Jerusalem. It appears that it will take him 30 days to restore order, to heal the earth, again an earth that's been devastated, as well as to gather the survivors to Jerusalem. Daniel, again, will reference 1,290 days, this being finished from the abomination of desolation. So it would be 30 days after his second coming. From our text, it's likely, over these 30 days, these 144,000 witnesses will play some type of role, official capacities as officers in Jesus' kingdom. According to Matthew 25, Jesus said that when the Son of Man comes and all the holy angels, He will sit on His throne of glory. The nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. After all of these things, everyone assembled in Jerusalem, the earth restored. It seems again, according to Daniel's prophecies, that for the next then 45 days, Jesus will reorder the nations. He'll officially form his government. Again, Daniel says 1,335 days from the abomination of desolation. This work will be complete or 75 days after Jesus' second coming. Again, at this point, the kingdom is established. The millennial reign, this thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth will begin. How awesome it will be to see it. Verse 2. John says, I heard a voice from heaven Like the voice of many waters. And like the voice of loud thunder. This would seem again in context to other mentions of a similar voice. To be the voice of God. And I heard the sound, John says, of harpists playing their harps. Again, that's what you would expect harpists to be doing. They, referring to the harpist. And again, we don't have names or references. A unique group of people. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Again, sometimes it can get murky. Are we looking at heaven? Are we looking on earth? This is in heaven, before the throne. We know that because it's also happening before the four living creatures, which we were introduced to earlier, and the elders, these 24 elders. We're told that no one, John says, so no one seemingly on earth. So this is what's happening in heaven. It's a song being sung. But no one on earth could learn that song except... The 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And again, we're not given the record of the song. We don't know what it's about. We're not given any context, just a tidbit of information. Now, regarding the 144,000, John adds, beginning with verse 4, he says, These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb, wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. We've talked about the 144,000 in great great detail in Revelation 7, so I would just refer you back to that particular study. Now, the big takeaway from these verses within the context, again, of the previous chapter is really this, this interesting visualization, again. In chapter 13, you have these fearsome beasts, right? Rising up, one out of the sea, one out of the land. The Antichrist and the false prophet. You get this visual throughout the whole chapter. It's dark and they're they're ferocious, these beasts. But then immediately there's a contrast when you get to chapter 14. You go from the beasts to what? To a lamb. A lamb standing on Mount Zion in victory. You see, while the Antichrist and the false prophet will prove to be vicious, And the people of God will suffer greatly under their wrath. Again, John here, he peels back the veil of time to remind us Jesus wins. Yeah, there's these beasts. But the lamb proves to be victorious. So there's really nothing to fear. Now, in the verses that follow, John records for us the process that leads up to this final victory. So he kind of sets the stage, the scene. Now he goes back and is going to, Elaborate on the process. Interesting. Verse 6. John says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This angel was saying with a loud voice, and he quotes him, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. You know, even with everything going on in the world, with the Antichrist and the false prophet, and this great deception of the nations, how interesting that God, even in the midst of great tribulation and wrath, would not allow the truth to be concealed and hidden. Yes, there's a deception. But God has His representatives. You have again the testimony of the 144,000. They're ministering on the earth. Testifying. For a season you have the ministry of the two witnesses we've talked about. Also proclaiming the truth of God's word. But John here, he sees something else. He says that God had commissioned an angel to literally, practically, fly around the earth preaching the everlasting gospel To those who dwell on the earth. Now, we don't know and and we're not told if this angel served this function for the entirety of the seven years, we don't know, or maybe the last three and a half, or even a smaller period of time right before the end, we don't know. But through his ministry, John says that every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, so this is a multilingual angel, not only warns the world that the hour of judgment had come, But this angel provides this invitation. Judgment is coming, but what does he say? He invites people to worship him who made heaven and earth. Again, kind of a similar ministry of John the Baptist being a forerunner. Judgment is coming, but there's hope of salvation. It's amazing to consider. But the everlasting gospel, and I love that, the everlasting gospel of what Jesus has done so many years ago so that man might be saved was during this period of judgment being proclaimed with a loud voice by this angel throughout all of the world what a sight right in god's mercy he was giving man a final chance to repent a, a final chance to accept his son and an act of grace god was extending through this angel one last invitation For man to accept salvation in place of judgment. It's interesting that in his teaching on the Great Tribulation, the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus issued an interesting prophecy that I think a lot of people have gotten twisted and maybe put out of context. Jesus says, He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations. And then the end will come. And you'll hear this particular verse get quoted by a lot of of well-to-do and well-intentioned missionary organizations that are saying, you know, what this is saying is that before Jesus... Uh, calls the church home before the rapture of the church, we need to let the whole world know. And that, that's kind of like the indicator. Like once the Bible gets translated in every language and, and once, once you know, we've had crusades in every country and once the whole world, that final lost tribe in the Amazon gets, gets found and the gospel gets presented to them, then boom, Jesus is coming back. Now, I will say that as Christians in the church age, we, we should take our calling and commission to take the gospel into the nations, baptizing them and the uh, disciples in the name of Jesus. We should take our commission seriously. That's a good thing. And yet, it it would appear that Revelation 14, this angel flying around the earth, proclaiming the everlasting gospel to every tribe and nation and tongue, is actually the fulfillment of this particular prophecy given by Jesus. That it's not about missionary endeavors, but this angel... By the end, there will not be a single soul on earth who has not been exposed to the good news of what Jesus did because, because God employs angelic messengers. I don't know, I think that's cool. It kind of frees me from the burden of telling everyone, because I can't, and I can fall back like, well, there'll be an angel, he'll cover it. Verse 8. And another angel followed. And this is what this angel said. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That phrase, the wine of the wrath of her fornication, that just doesn't sound good, does it? No. Now, chapter 17 and 18, will be given kind of a detailed account of not only what Babylon represented, but John will then document for us the ultimate destruction of this worldly system. So we're going to leave a bit of our commentary for a few chapters from now. Now in the Greek though, this duplicate, is fallen, is fallen. It's in the active tense. And really it would be better translated, is falling, It's falling. Like The better way to see this angelic proclamation is being predictive as opposed to informative. During this great tribulation, not only will one angel be flying around the earth presenting the good news of the gospel, but you'll have this second angel pointing out the obvious. You'll have this second uh, measure of testimony. This angel pointing out that this worldly system that's antithetical to God, represented by Babylon, is in the process of coming crashing down. Not only is one angel saying, there's good news, there's salvation, there's Jesus. But then you've got the second angel saying, and you should really think about that because everything going on here is falling down. It's crashing down. Why hold on to this world? You can see it for what it is. Verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image... And receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So we have this contrast. Which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no... Rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. While the false prophet had been clear what would happen if a person refused to take the mark, he would be executed. God sends this third angel throughout the world to testify as to the eternal consequences if a person relented received the brand of the beast, and in doing so, pledged his allegiance to worship Satan. You would be eternally damned. God's witness is clear. The angel warns specifically that such a person shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Practically, this would include this individual being tormented with fire and brimstone, so that the smoke of their torment would ascend forever and ever. And if matters couldn't get any worse, the angel then adds that these people will have no rest, day or night. You know, pertaining to hell, there's some difficult truths to these verses. Some challenging ones. Again, please note that there's nothing written in the text that lends us to any type of allegory or figurative. It is very literal in its presentation, even as brutal as it comes across. And there are several things about hell that we can take from this. I'm not going to hammer them home, but I'm, I'll list them for you. According to this text, we know that hell is a place where unrepentant man will experience the wrath of God for his sins. It is a place of punishment, a place of judgment. Two, hell is a place of incredible restlessness. Again, no rest, day or night. And continual torment. Three, hell is an eternal experience that has no end. Like understand, we only have one example in the Bible of the wrath of God being poured out in full strength. Only one example. And it was the cross of Calvary, where Jesus took upon himself God's wrath for our sin. Lastly, I would just note that when considering the existence of such a place, never forget. And again, the idea of hell, it's tough. It's challenging. But never forget that not one soul who ends up in hell hadn't been provided a way out. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. You know, back in verse 10 of chapter 13, we noted how John kind of worked in a brief proverb of sorts. John says he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity he who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword here is the patience and faith of the saints a similar refrain uh, we find here in chapter 13 what John was saying is that during this period of incredible persecution the followers of Jesus they will be encouraged to persevere to endure the the basis of their faith will will be encouraged by the law of retribution divine retribution <laughs> Jesus will enact vengeance. This statement here, though, within these two verses of chapter 14, it gives us another insight, kind of another proverb, into the strength of the saints during these final days. John tells us that by the end of these seven years, things will have have gotten so bad on earth that death will no longer be feared by the saints of God. In fact, death will be welcomed. As an act of mercy, and escape. Like rest and reward, as opposed to just this continued brutality of the enemy. The statement that's issued by the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's important. He says, look at it again, he says, For concerning the martyred saints, their works, follow them. You know, regarding our Christian work, and, and when we say work, we're talking about like our service to Jesus. The Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians 2, verse 10, he would say that we, you and I, we are his workmanship. So to start with, you're his workmanship. Jesus' workmanship. He is working on you. In the Greek, it's poema or, or poem. You're a, a poem being written by God, not completed in the process. That process will, won't be completed till heaven, but, but you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then Paul says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Very interesting. You know, fascinating about our work, our work for Jesus, our work for the Lord, is that Jesus created us for these things. We've been created to serve, created to work. But Jesus also accepts then the responsibility to place before us the things He wants us to to be doing. We are His workmanship, created for works, works that God preordained, that we should walk in them. God prepared them beforehand, so it's our job to walk, to see them, to recognize them, to walk in them. You see, this is why our heavenly rewards are not based upon accomplishments, but faithfulness. Because we don't have a say in the work it's our job to be faithful in the work. He's created us, and He's ordained it, and we're to walk in it. So what's accomplished doesn't really matter. It's the process. It's the faithfulness. Not, not only that, but this also explains why one service to Jesus is no more important than another. Like My service to Jesus takes place here on Sunday morning behind this pulpit opening God's Word and expounding upon it to you. That's my service to Jesus. I hope you're blessed by it. But this is something that I felt like God had created me for and has foreordained that this is what I do and I'm just walking in it. I'm being faithful in it. But understand, if, if, if your job Uh, is to work at a Fortune 400 and oversee a bunch of people in various stores, and that's what God created you for and ordained you to do, and you walk, your service is no different than mine, because we're judged not on what's accomplished, but by being faithful in the process. If you're really good at cooking, and that's your service to Jesus, and you make just delicious gumbo for the church on Sunday morning, your service to Jesus is, is... It's not about what's accomplished, it's about the faithfulness in the process. That's why what I do behind the pulpit on Sunday morning is no more important than any of the people on stage leading worship or the people behind the video cameras making the live stream. It's what God foreordained them to do. This is what God foreordained me to do. We're all being faithful in it and we'll be uh, rewarded accordingly, which is cool. So I don't have to worry about, well, Zach, I don't have any gifts. No, you have something. I mean, God just didn't, he wasn't napping when he made you. So what are those gifts? And then look for the opportunity to use those gifts because you don't create the opportunity. God has prepared them and now it's your job to walk in them. Takes the burden off, doesn't it? You know, I'm not not sure if you fully understand how theologically accurate the statement really was. But Rush Limbaugh would famously refer to himself as being talent on loan from God. You know, the the great irony is that we all have talent on loan from God. And one day we'll return that talent. Like, this is how we should view ourselves. And whatever our giftings, whatever our abilities, God has equipped you And he provides you the opportunity to use the gifts he gave to his glory for you're his workmanship. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold, kind of like in the, the original, he says, I looked and wow, behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now regarding this title, one like the Son of Man, there is no doubt that John, he's receiving here another vision of Jesus. We know that because Daniel employed this unique title, Son of Man, frequently in in his prophecies in reference to the Messiah. And then when you study the Gospels, Son of Man was was the one title Jesus used of himself more than any other. And so the connection is clear in the vision here. John, he sees the glorified Jesus and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now a sickle, a sickle was a shorthanded farming tool that had kind of a a semi-circular blade. It was used for, for swinging, you would harvest grain, you'd clear out underbrush. So you have Jesus here in glory with a sickle in his hand. <laughs> Alright, now the question is, what's he going to do with the sickle? Verse, four, verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. So this is the temple in heaven, meaning that this angel is being sent from God the Father to Jesus with a message. The instruction, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. That word ripe literally means to be past right, past due. So he who sat on the cloud, Jesus thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus uses the imagery of reaping in a harvest with regards to evangelistic outreach. Jesus famously said to his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Tragically, though, by the time we get to Revelation 14, the seasons have now changed. This is not a harvest unto salvation. It's a harvest unto judgment. One harvest is over, and now a much different one is about to commence. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. It's a pretty cool job. He cried out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. So the other angel, and he said, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth <clears throat> for her grapes are fully ripe. And again, a bit of a distinction. Fully ripe now describes a grape that is basically rotting. It's, it's rotting on the, on the vine. Verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furloins. Again, the context by which we have this chapter is best understood as a counter to the previous chapter and the successes of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Yes, these two men have their day, but in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus will reign from Mount Zion after destroying the wicked of the earth. Now in these closing verses, John here, he's recording for us likely the battle of Armageddon and the final harvesting of, of the wicked. But he's, but he's recording this event from kind of the spiritual, heavenly vantage point. We'll get the earthly vantage point later in the book. To illustrate this scene, he refers to the wicked as being fully ripe grapes. And in judgment, they're cut down. They're cast into a great winepress of the wrath of God. They're crushed. Now what results from this divine judgment? Was that the blood, we're told, of those killed rises up to the horse's bridle and we're told that this happens specifically outside the city of Jerusalem. And it, and it exists like this, we're told, for 1,600 furloins. And a furloin is roughly, uh, 1,600, it's roughly 200 miles. Now, what John is recording here, it's incredibly specific and literal. But, to be fair, it's very difficult To just imagine how in the world this is possible or how it could even happen in such a literal way. Now in his accounting of this final conflict recorded at the end of Daniel 11, we know that the Antichrist, he ends up leaving Israel with his armies and he he does so to put down a rebellion that stems from Egypt and a confederation of North African countries. The Antichrist's conquest is successful but then something interesting happened. Dan- Daniel notes, he says that news from the east and the north troubled the Antichrist. Therefore, he went out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he planted the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Again, that would be Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Yet, he shall come to his end. No one will help him. In Revelation 16, verse 16, John tells us that the armies of the nations in this last conflict will be gathered together to a place called in the Hebrew Armageddon now the reason that i bring all of this to your attention is just to kind of emphasize like the full scope of what john is articulating when he's describing like the distance of 1600 furlongs 200 miles it indicates a battlefield and kill zone that is much, much larger than the traditional location of the Battle of Armageddon, being the Valley of Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo is not 200 miles long. Case in point, the entire nation of ancient Israel extended from Dan, up in the far north, down to Beersheba in the south. The distance is only 173 miles. Like it is likely, again, when we get into these things, especially with some of the seal, uh, the, the bold judgments, it is likely that that massive tectonic, like geographic shifts have have occurred, that might create a battlefield that's now actually two hundred miles long. I mean, a lot of things will be happening that might set the scene to make this more realistic, but it's just hard to say other than the fact that it's an incredible kill zone, 200 miles where the blood rises to the horse's bridle, so roughly between five and six feet. Now, chapter 14. Let me close by saying this. Probably the heaviest thing I'll say all day. But one of the great difficulties to being born and raised in Georgia is that you're forced into Atlanta Hawks and Falcons fandom. I mean, it's really probably the, the hardest thing to say all day. I mean, it's really brutal to cheer for the Hawks and the Falcons. Like, rooting for the home team has led to years of continual and perpetual heartache and disappointment. Jessica asks often, she says, why do you even watch the hawks? And my answer is, is I have too much joy in my life. And I just need an hour or two of suffering every third night. Like the truth, I'm just being real. The truth is being predestined from the foundation of the world to root for losers is an incredible burden but I have no choice. Like even the Braves, who had a 10-year stretch with a Hall of Fame coach, three in their starting rotation, another on third, and a center fielder who should get the nod, and we were only able to win one World Series back when I was 12? The entire town needs therapy. In fact, I take great solace knowing that these are the closest experiences I will ever have to hell. If I may, I'm I'm really envious of those people, some of you, who are transplants to the greater Atlanta area. Or I'm envious of that person who just moved around a lot growing up. Like again, for sports fans, these people, they tend to have no real loyalty to the hometown team. And you know what? They get to cheer for whatever team they like, whenever they want. You get to pick a winner every year. Like, it's amazing to me at how many Atlanta natives, Atlanta natives, traded in their number 12 Patriots jerseys for the Bucks equivalent whole town became Buccaneers fans. I don't know how someone can justify in good conscience as a Christian being born in Georgia but cheering for Alabama. It's, it's just unreasonable. It must be really nice, I guess this is what I'm saying, it must be really nice to have the moral flexibility to cheer for a winner every single year. I hope you feel good about that. Here. Here's my appeal. Here's my appeal this morning and the grand lesson that we can take away from Revelation 14. But we're bringing it home. You know when the story's over? When the season comes to an end, Jesus wins. And that's the truth. And while with sports, there may be something noble to being a homer and remaining true when it's a loser with regards to eternity, I'm so excited. I don't have to be a fool and I don't have to cheer for a loser. I can pick a winner and his name is Jesus. That's what chapter 14 is about. Don't be a homer. Antichrist and the false prophet. We're going to do it this year. No. No, they're going to lose. And Jesus is going to win. That's how it plays out. Like, you can pick a winner. So don't be a loser. Chapter 14. Jesus, thank you for your word and what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.